Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is Jay Nordlinger, senior editor at National Review, music critic extraordinaire, and in full disclosure, my dear friend and former part podcasting partner. Uh, we did a podcast together for, I don't know, five or six years. So welcome, Jay. It's like old home week having you back. <laughs> and um, we uh, I have to say it was very difficult to tear myself away from the impeachment proceedings. Um and uh, to, to, to record this, but so I'd like, Jay, to start with you. Um, there were a lot of people who were wondering whether it was worth doing this at all in light of the unwillingness of a majority of, a majority of the Republican senators um, to even consider conviction. I'm glad that this trial is taking place because I think it establishes a record. It places evidence on the record. I think the trial will, well, everyone thinks it will result in an acquittal, not a conviction. But at least a record is being established. It's important to see, to hear, to bear in mind, all of that. It is almost like an educational exercise. And I think that's to the good, the result aside. What do you think, Bill? Um, I know you were concerned about the uh, effect of a second acquittal that Trump would tr trumpet this, uh, and so forth? Uh, I'm still worried about that. Uh, but but as you see how it's unfolding, don't you think there is, as Jay says, some you know point to this as an educational exercise? Uh, but there was a comma uh, after the words I just said, <laughs> not a period. Uh, I was about to say, uh, I'm still worried about that comma, uh, but... Uh, my worries, I think, have been overridden by exactly the factors uh, that Jay put on the table. Uh, I'm a reasonably assiduous newspaper reading, reader, uh, but I've learned all sorts of stuff I knew nothing about. Uh, and I think the people who are tuning in are having the same experience. Uh, the fact that there's so much video for a video age uh, just underscores uh, the extent to which public education may be taking place, and certainly a record is being established, uh, that it will be very hard for Mr. Trump's supporters to expunge even when and as they continue to support him. Linda, do you have a, um, do you have a view about how the different managers are doing? Um, I, I have to say I, I think they've all been really good. And this is a, a very, very well-executed uh, argument. Um, but do, do, do you have a favorite or do you, do you, is there anybody who you think has been less strong? Well, um, I will answer that, but I want to pick up on something that Bill said, and that is uh, that he was seeing some of this footage for the first time. I think it's important to note that if you do not watch CNN, MSNBC, or the three major networks, you don't, you won't have seen much of this video. And I would suggest that there are many members of, of the Senate in that chamber sitting there who are seeing this for the very first time. They are uh, basically getting a view of what many of the rest of us knew happened, but they didn't know it happened because it was kept from them. Fox News rarely ran any of this footage. They certainly didn't run it in their primetime shows. OAN, Newsmax, um, they certainly didn't uh, inform the audience what had happened. So I think that's important. And I think that's why you're seeing people like Senator Lankford from Oklahoma essentially break down watching this because my guess is he had no idea. Now, in terms of the managers, I think they've all been um, first rate. I do have my favorites. Um, as you know, I am uh, grew up in Colorado. I 
lived in Colorado, voted in Colorado much of my life. Joe Neguse, I think, is a new star in the Democratic Party. I think he has been just terrific. I mean, the way in which he is able to talk, and I, you know, many of these uh, managers are reading from a, uh, a script they have in front of them. Um, he seemed to not need that script, um, and probably that's partly because he's been in uh, the courtroom many times before. So I think he's my favorite. And my second favorite uh, is somebody that I don't agree with on anything, happens to be my own congressman now, and that is Jamie Raskin. I think he has been really terrific, uh, not just in that emotional first day, but uh, the way, you know, as the lead manager, he's organized this testimony. He has presented a case that um, in a normal court of law would be irrefutable. I mean, I don't know what the defense is going to be, but the way in which this case has been laid out, if they honestly, those senators who claim to be impartial jurors are listening to this testimony, they really have only one choice, and that is to vote to convict. Yeah, I mean, it is such it is such an overwhelming case. And one of the things that they have done so effectively, and I'll come to you on this, Damon, is they laid out the history so thoroughly that this was not a one-off. This was not, you know, just one speech where Trump riled up a bunch of people and pointed them at the Capitol, that it was a consistent pattern over the course, first of all, since the since he lost the election, where he has been telling lies and, and spreading the idea that the election was stolen. And then it, they, they went through it very methodically, that he attempted, first of all, to, to call into question the results of the election, then to pressure state officials, um, and then to pressure his own Department of Justice, um, putting pressure then finally on Mike Pence, um, and, uh, and, and it culminating in the violent attack on the counting of the Electoral College votes. Um, so, I, first of all, do you, do you agree that that was a very effective? And then second, uh, if you could do a two-parter for me, the second part is, um, Jay and others have said, you know, this is it's important, it lays down a marker. Linda said maybe some people were unfamiliar with this. My question is, the people in the constituencies of these Republican senators, um, Will they even now, even after all this, will they be aware of it? Will it penetrate? Well, I, I tend to think no, uh, but let me begin with your, your first question. Is it, has it been powerfully presented and compelling? Uh, absolutely. In fact, I would say uh, it was compellingly presented by reality itself while it was happening. I mean, <laughs> we were all there watching everything that started at 2.30 a.m. on November 4th when Donald Trump stood up in front of the press and ranted and raved about how the election was stolen from him already at that point, and then how when the election was finally called by journalists on the following Saturday, he responded by rejecting that result, and it then became that it was a landslide that he was deprived of and all the craziness for the following subsequent two months from that point on. And I remember saying on this podcast in December that I was very worried about what was going to happen on January 6th when the Congress met to, uh, to officially certify or accept the certified uh, electoral votes from the different states because he was setting up something exactly like what happened. So it was like the fulfillment of something that was being enacted before our very eyes that entire time. And then to have it recapitulated now after we know what really did in fact happen and put together with additional information behind the scenes that we didn't know about at the time. It, it's an open and shut case. Um, I mean, as Raskin said, I agree uh, that he's been fabulous uh, and is my personal favorite because of his opening statement that left me uh, very shaken on uh, the first day. Uh, as he pointed out, if this isn't impeachable, meaning meaning uh, conviction-worthy impeachable behavior by the executive in charge of the, uh, the president, then nothing is. Then why don't we just erase impeachment from the 
Constitution altogether. Yep. Because it's hard to imagine a situation that could be more worthy of impeachment than the president himself attempting to overthrow the results of a democratic <laughs> election by by inciting a physical assault on Congress. It's just <laughs> beyond imagining. However, I will say my old, you know, jaded, cynical self cannot help but say it is a kind of uh, I will almost call it, instead of Machiavellian, I will call it McConnellian uh, <laughs> kind of cynicism that leads me to to stand back and wonder at the ability of the Republicans to come up with the perfect way out, which is this constitutionality argument. Now, you know, we talked about this also on the podcast a few weeks ago. Bill Galston noted it, I think, uh, right after the January 6th events. That, yeah, there is some uncertainty. Can you impeach a, a, a president who isn't, you know, isn't currently in office? That is a question, um, but it is really astonishing how well they have been able to insulate themselves from ever having to make the actual moral decision to come out and say, yes, this happened. Yes, Trump did it. And yes, it is worthy of the strongest sanction we can lodge as an institution, as a society. They can simply say, yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it was a mistake. Everyone gets a mulligan, to quote Senator Mike Lee. Uh, and so really, in the end, it comes down to, yeah, it'd be great if we could do something about it. But our hands are tied. This is unconstitutional. This whole proceeding shouldn't even be happening. Uh, la di da, and then on we go. And I, I, I shudder to think of what we're going to see in the next few days when they actually vote on this thing. Is it conceivable that people are going to who voted to say the entire proceeding is unconstitutional are now going to flip and say, actually, in this unconstitutional procedure, I'm voting to convict? I, I find that pretty impossible to believe. But uh, you know, the evidence presented leads me to think that that would still be the just outcome if it can happen. I'll yeah, I mean, it, it, no, it's, it's all good points. I mean, Bill, it, it seems like um, those, what was it, 44 Republicans who said um, that this whole thing is unconstitutional have pretty much locked themselves into an acquittal, don't you think? <sighs> Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think it's very unfortunate and it is even conceivable uh, that uh, some of them are now on a bind, uh, having seen what they've seen in the, in the past couple of days. Uh, and the only way they can get themselves out of that bind is to say that they have reconsidered uh, their position on the constitutionality of this proceeding, uh, because if if they say that it's it's unconstitutional to proceed down this road, then I think they have no choice uh, but to cast their vote to to acquit. And uh, you met, somebody mentioned Senator Lankford. Uh, I very much wonder whether uh, he is the only Republican senator who is now feeling pangs of remorse. I'd point out in the case of Senator Lankford that. He was one of the Republican senators who changed his mind on January 6th yeah. and withdrew his support uh, for a challenge that he had previously been on record uh, as being in favor of. Uh, frankly, I've always Explain, had – One second, Bill. Let me just interject. You, he was prepared to vote not to accept the Electoral College votes of one of the states, Arizona or Pennsylvania, and that's, the, that's where he flipped, right? That's, and, he, and he changed his position on that. Yeah. I have to say I was very pleased by that because although Senator Lankford is a very conservative Republican, I have always regarded him as an honest and honorable man. And I was very surprised that he took the initial position that he did on accepting the results. And I am, I'm delighted that uh, he changed his mind because I don't have to totally re revise my opinion <laughs> of him, which was quite positive. <laughs> Linda, you wanted to make a comment? Yeah, I wanted to get in on this because I, I, I want to beg to differ. 
uh, with Bill. Uh, I don't think that uh, it necessarily ties them in. The Constitution is very clear. The power to convict after impeachment lies solely with the Senate. The Senate considered whether or not this measure was unconstitutional, um, and the Senate, by vote, decided that it was, in fact, constitutional. This is not something that the judiciary can decide. The Constitution makes it clear that the only body that can decide on these matters is the Senate of the United States. The Senate voted that this was a constitutional effort, and they did so in a bipartisan fashion, by the way. Uh, there were, in fact, uh, Republican senators who voted uh, as well. Uh, was it six of them? I think it was six. Yeah, six. Uh, six of them voted uh, to make it constitutional. So for those who are having pangs of conscience, while I don't really think this is constitutional, we're a nation of laws. And our laws say that when a law passes, whether you agree or disagree with it, you abide by it. And so the Senate of the United States decided that it was constitutional to proceed. Now, if you really have a moral objection, you have a very simple remedy. Get up and walk out. Put your feet where your mouth is and walk out of the proceeding and don't participate. And you know what that would do? That would leave all of those who believe that they are uh, participating in an unconstitutional exercise, if all of them left, those who truly believe that, then it would require two-thirds of those remaining, and there would be a quorum because presumably all those who thought it was constitutional would remain. It would require only two-thirds of those remaining because a quorum in the United States Senate is 51 senators. So that's the simple solution. <laughs> well, Good for I, you, Linda. May, yeah, may go I ahead, beg, Bill. May I beg to differ <laughs> with the previous beg to differ? Uh, uh, there, is, there is a very lively debate among conservative constitutional scholars on precisely the question that Linda put on the table. Namely, is a decision by the Senate of the United States that a, tri a certain trial is constitutional, is that the end of the conversation, or is, they, is there uh, a review process that is part of the constitutional proceeding that involves the Supreme Court? Uh, there was a fascinating debate on exactly this subject between, uh, I believe, Keith Whittington, a conservative scholar uh, from, uh, from Princeton, and Judge Michael Luttig, uh, you know, conducted by the the Constitution Center, and I would uh, I would urge all of the listeners to this podcast uh, to listen to that, and then to decide for themselves whether it is clear cut or not that the Supreme Court has no legitimate business in this proceeding. I would also say that whatever. Uh, Mr. Whittington thinks, or Mr. Luddig thinks, or Linda thinks, or I think, uh, if the President of the United States were convicted under these circumstances, he would certainly, or the former President, he would certainly take the case to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court will have to decide you know, whether you know, it has jurisdiction. Uh, and if there's anybody who will override the judgment of the Supreme Court or any institution, I can't identify him or it. Okay. Um, I'm Could I again, again interrupt? Sorry. Um, oh, okay. Uh, because I just saw uh, a note in my news feed that um, Manu Raju, who is a CNN reporter, was in the chamber, uh, and there were 15 empty GOP seats in the chamber. So maybe they, you know, are taking my advice. But, you're, you, you know, I, I don't debate bill with you that the president former president uh, trump would take this to the court i'd be willing to bet my entire retirement that the supreme court would demur and not take the case or defer to the senate the senate's judgment in this absolutely uh, being final okay could i, could yeah, I just uh, add that uh yeah, I, sure. I did i did the math real quick and uh 67 of 85 is uh, 57. 
So that, that you know, we're, we're already up to around what fifty five, fifty six. Uh, so, you know, maybe something's happening. Something's up. Yeah. On the other weird. hand, maybe they left the chamber because they're ty- they're saying, oh, it's getting repetitive and we knew all this. Remember, in the first impeachment, a lot of them said, of course, we knew he was guilty, but we weren't going to vote to convict anyway. I almost and had to- some hope there, Mona, and you've crashed it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, no, experience is a bitter teacher. Um, um, but, Jay, I want to circle back to you here with just a quick two-parter. Well, it doesn't have to be quick, but a two-parter. One, um, one of the people that uh, they quoted – well, I'll come to that second. I'll come to the Mick Mulvaney. The first one was that Ted Lieu – and this you don't have to comment on this. I just thought this was an interesting point. Ted Lieu, one of the impeachment managers, made the point – that he's not worried about Trump winning election again. He's worried about him running and losing, right, and doing something just like this uh, or maybe even on a bigger scale. So that's the importance of that disqualification from future office punishment that is available for those who are convicted in an impeachment. But um, but here's what I want to come to and I come to you on. Um, Mick Mulvaney is one of the people who's quoted um, one of the former Trump people who um, uh, was was critical of Trump for his conduct here. And um, I just, yeah, I want to get your reaction because Mick Mulvaney went to work for Trump. He said, I can defend Trump. Here's what he said in the video. He said, I can defend Trump. A lot of the criticisms of Trump in the past were, you know, about personality and style, and I can always, or about policy, he said, but I can always defend him. But this was different, he said. Now, Jay, you and I go way back in trying, you know, beating the drum that Trump is a sociopath, and it was obvious that he was a bad human being, <laughs> capable of God only knows what, right from the get-go. Um, do you want to give Mick Mulvaney a pass for taking an armed insurrection for him to recognize who he was dealing with? Well, better late than never, maybe, but that's a very late recognition. Uh, Trump has been pretty clear from the beginning. Uh, I don't think there is a Democratic or liberal Democratic bone in his body. He is a classic demagogue. He's a would-be authoritarian. He's in the tradition of Huey Long, who was very talented, and George C. Wallace and a few other beauties. But this guy got elected president. And uh, I do think a lot of Republican officials recognize Trump for who he is, but the electorate is madly pro-Trump. And the officials follow the electorate. Uh, I wonder what a secret ballot would look like in the Senate uh, if they could vote in this trial by secret ballot. Uh, Liz Cheney, you know, was spared in the House by secret ballot. I think that secrecy was very important. But there are very, very few Republican officials willing to put themselves on record against Trump. I think this makes the example of Mitt Romney uh, extraordinary. Uh, So far, at least, he's the only person in American history to vote against a president of his own party in an impeachment trial. And speaking of Mitt Romney... Great transition because I want. There was another thing that happened this week that almost felt normal, um, which is delightful. Namely, we got a little discussion of actual policy for a change. Um, We have competing plans on how to deal with child poverty in this country. One proposal was by Senator Romney very generous family allowance that would give uh, an automatic allowance to uh, to children in America up to a certain income level. And um, and another proposal that's buried in the, well, buried, but included in the Biden plan for the um, response to COVID that would also increase the, uh, the child tax credit. Bill, I'm going to go to you first. Um, do you prefer one or the other, or do you think there's room here for a good, good fruitful, debate i do i do have a preference but it's for neither of them okay uh, you know i've i've spent some time uh working on my own compromise budget which may or may not see the light of day in some form in in the next in the next few days and uh i think that there are some problems with the size of the democratic proposal and i think there are some problems with the pay-fors in the romney proposal and so 
Uh, I think that it would, in a more normal legislative environment, be possible to take the best features of each and put them put them together uh, and come up with something that uh, a solid majority of both the House and the Senate might be able to support. But what I see as most promising about this debate, and thank you for calling our attention to it, is that this is this is the way it's supposed to work, and that is that there is an agreement on ends, but a disagreement about means. And debates of that sort are well enough formed so that they can reach a conclusion. Uh, yeah. If there isn't a debate on ends, or if there isn't, it, rather, if there isn't an agreement on ends, or if there isn't an agreement on basic facts, then the debate stalls out. But it's at least possible that both of those conditions will be fulfilled this time. So, Linda, um, I don't know about you, but um, this isn't the main selling point as far as I'm concerned with the Romney proposal, um, but I like the pay for. I mean, he, he proposes to eliminate the uh, deduction for state and local taxes, which basically is a, is a program that benefits high earners in high tax states. Um, so I, I think that's a good way, uh, one of the ways to pay for this. The other thing he does is he, he just, it's, it's clean. He sweeps away a lot of the existing programs in favor of this much more simplified approach to giving money to parents. Well, I guess I have to speak here uh, from a policy point of view, not from a personal one, because as somebody who is in a high tax state uh, and earns a decent income, that'll hurt me uh, badly. But of course, that uh, was done with the ta uh, Trump tax uh, reform as well. Um, look, this isn't the first time that a Republican has considered this. I'm old enough to remember, as some others on this program, me, I'm sure Bill remembers, uh, that this was considered during the Nixon years, the sort of guaranteed family income. Yep. Uh, it was proposed, they thought about it, uh, and ultimately Nixon didn't move forward with it. Uh, and I think there are, um, look, I think there are problems to guaranteeing uh, an income. I mean, we would all like to think that liberals certainly do believe this, that all of us really live to work and that we all want to be self-sufficient. Uh, I think history uh, and experience have taught us that that's not true, that if you make work unproductive, that fewer people will work. Now, giving it just uh, in terms of children, um, making sure that children are taken care of, um, you know, alleviate some of that problem. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we're going to, you know, find that some people are going to argue that uh, it will encourage more out of wedlock uh, child uh, births. Um, that was always one of the arguments against welfare. Um, so I, I think it's... Um, Look, I'd like to, to have a way, uh, and, and certainly a tax credit, even if it is a refundable tax credit, um, you know, maybe alleviate some of that. But I think the whole idea of guaranteeing to every person, um, to every child, uh, a certain allotment, uh, it has some problems. Damon, um, one of the problems that the, these proposals are meant to address is that we aren't having enough babies and that we have among the highest uh, child poverty rates in the developed world. Um, and um, one of the things that Romney's proposal, I'm, I'm very fond of Romney's proposal, as you, as you can tell, but um, one of the things that it addresses is that um, First of all, it's very pro-life. It begins like in the second half of a pregnancy um, because many, something like 28% of people who see, seek abortions say they do so because they're worried about the financial burden of having a child. So it's kind of pro-life in a way that's nice. Um, but, uh, but the other thing is that um, it eliminates the marriage penalty, right? It, it sweeps away the EITC um, uh, child credit where if you are single, two singles uh, raising a child together are penalized if they marry under the current system. And so this would eliminate that. Um, so it just, and it's also just, what is your view about, about making it easier for Americans to have and raise children? 
Well, I think it's great. I mean, we're, I guess we're going to beg not to differ very much on the Romney plan because we all seem to sort of like it, even if we're, you know, a little unsure about some of it. Um, I think for all kinds of reasons, uh, it's it's a very good move. I think the entire approach, I think, is refreshing. I mean, you're, the references to the earned income tax credit and other holdovers from what is typically called usually with a kind of sneer, the neoliberal era, kind of from Reagan through Bill Clinton, through even the Obama years. The entire approach to these kinds of public policy issues was this kind of intricate nudging of behavior where like you kind of, you do admit that policymaking does change behavior, but the way you you try to change it in a publicly politically positive way in terms of the common good is you sort of adjust people's tax burden and maybe they get a little check here or there or the deduction is is decreased slightly from their paycheck. It's always sort of half invisible, which means that its positive effects are very difficult to calculate. And it also is very difficult to kind of to gain po uh, positive support on the part of constituents, people, the American people. They're not really clear what the benefit is, where it's coming from, how it, how it benefits them personally. This plan uh, has the advantage, I think, of just being basically a cash transfer. It cuts through a lot of this kind of middleman stuff about about uh, tax deductions and credits and things and just sweeps that away and just says, you're going to get a check once a month from the government and it's going to be keyed to your children. How many do you have? How old are they? Um, I like that it has um, uh, phase outs at the upper end of the income scale, which you know a lot of liberals don't like. They want everything to be a kind of universal benefit to build in big support. I'm in favor of the big support, but I, I also don't like the idea of a millionaire getting uh, checks from the government. Uh, if we indeed do have any constraints, that would be the place to impose them. And I agree with you, Mona, on the SALT deduction, the state and local taxes. I think that um, I don't know, frankly, if that would impact me personally very much, but either way, I think that it's uh, a good idea uh, to uh, not be giving those kinds of incentives to people who live in high-tax states, kind of giving them what amounts to a kind of uh, a rebate on that fact. So um, in all those ways, I think it's good. I also have a final point. I think it's good because it is at once a move to actually put some substance behind all the talk that you hear about, oh, Republicans are going to become a kind of populist party in a positive sense, not just kind of culture war and grievances, but actually we're going to help working people. Yeah. Um, this actually would do it, and that it's coming from Romney and not from Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, who have both objected to it. Yeah. Uh, it sort of scrambles the, the, the kind of the electrical connections on the right. right in a way that I think would be very, very good for the party going forward, if it can gain some traction. So, yeah. And then I, I also like, I love Bill's point, too, about how it's just a sign of – Oh, yeah, that's how we do public policy in a functioning democracy. One side makes a proposal, the other makes a different proposal, and then there's negotiation of exactly how to accomplish the agreed-upon end. So that, that all of that together means yay, Mitt Romney, and, uh, and uh, there we go. Yes. Um, Jay, remember when we were in mourning when uh, Mitt Romney didn't win in 2012? Um, this is all the more reason to uh, renew that that feeling. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we do badly in this country, it seems to me, is that we try to hide government spending as a form of a tax plan, a tax proposal. We give credits and then refundable tax credits, and we have all kinds of overly complex ways of getting money to people. And it has two effects. One, it disguises what we're actually spending. And two, it makes it very difficult for certain people to 
who need the help to actually get it. So if you don't make a certain minimum level of income, for example, you don't even qualify for the EITC, and that will leave out a number of very uh, deserving working families. Um, and so Romney says, you know, get rid of TAMP, get rid of the EITC child credit, get rid of, you know, all that stuff, and just have the Social Security Administration, which we know is very good at sending people checks, um, just do that. So I'm a Mona Charon reader, and I read your column on this. I read all your columns, and of course I agreed with it. Um, but I would like to tell you a story. Uh, you know, the federal government gives out arts awards, music awards, arts awards. I think this is absurd for the American government government to be doing this. I can understand it for France, for China, for various monarchies and dictatorships and so on. I think it's absurd that the U.S. government does it. Some years ago, an important government official called me and said, could you recommend some people for our opera awards? And I said, look, I don't think the government should be in the business of giving out these awards. I think it's kind of obscene. He said, I know, I know, but we're going to do it any, anyway. You might as well get who you want. <laughs> so I made some recommendations. I'm not sure the U.S. government should have a family policy or a child policy. I am very skeptical of the ability of the government to address these problems. I think these problems are primarily not material or economic. I'm not sure these problems are really treatable by government. But, yeah, if you're going to go down that road, this sounds pretty good to me. But right. pardon my skepticism. Nope. We've been nope. at this for a long time, including with the war on poverty. I knew some of those great warriors, interviewed them, good people. Democrats yeah. in West Virginia worked alongside Sergeant Shriver, great people, noble people. They said they didn't do a whit of good. Hmm. Well, but we're still at it. Yep. Okay. And we're going to have it anyway. It's sort of like federal education policy. George W. Bush said, yeah, maybe the federal government shouldn't be in the business of education, but it's going to be in that business. We might as well attach strings and I could see the point. We'll just have one go round on this, um, keep it short. But um, Donald O'Neill, a great reporter at the New York Times, was let go. I think they say he wasn't fired, but it was pretty clear he was. Um, we've now heard that uh, Brett Stevens wrote a column critical of his employer that was spiked. Um, not confirmed, but that seems to be out there. Um, O'Neill seems to be a new victim of what can fairly be called cancel culture, although I hate that expression because it's losing its meaning. But look, I mean, he, he I'll go to you, Damon, because I know you've followed this. You can you can explain what happened and uh, give your views. Well, I, I can't really say that I can follow all the details. It's a little bizarre. Um, Did I say it wrong? McNeil. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. McNeil. Uh, sorry. He, he, apparently, the New York Times, as the regal, uh, very wealthy, successful company that it is, has a side, uh, a side uh, uh, kind of business in – junkets sending high school students to various places around the world and uh i forget where did they go was it peru peru uh, yeah yeah so uh, mcneil uh, was the kind of a reporter sent to go with these kids and that's part of the deal it's a little bit like these cruises that you know uh you know small magazines hold to raise money so the times does this probably for quite a bit of profit the students pay for it they go down there and apparently a couple of years ago they were on this trip and someone was talking about um an incident involving racism and uh, McNeil wanted to make a point and quoted somebody and used the n-word within the quotation which some of the students who were on the trip took offense to and then somehow conveyed this information up the chain at the New York Times. There was a, an investigation of it in the past. Uh, nothing major was done about it, but then this guy came out, and uh, there was then a second round of investigations more recently, and he ended up, McNeil ended up being fired over it. Now, he's a very prominent science writer at the Times, a reporter, wrote a lot of important stories early in the pandemic about COVID, for instance. Um, and so he released not only that, but then he released a statement after it was announced he was fired in which he sounded 
very contrite, almost like he was thanking them for not killing him. Like it was, it was a very uh, over the top, uh, abject apology for his transgression. It sounded like a Maoist struggle session. Yeah, it did. It was, it was a really. I mean, my only comment about it because I do think we sort of spend. I, I spend time on Twitter, and it's like all, everyone I follow is a journalist, and two thirds of what we're talking about is kind of HR policy of the New York <laughs> Times. It's just bizarre how much. <laughs> attention this gets so anyways I, I i my only comment on it at the time when this happened last friday was to say you know he's fired is it not is it now expected that you then stand up and say publicly well thank you for firing i very much deserved this uh it's very strange so now this has led to a huge round of kind of internal strife at the times where kind of old timers who aren't on board with the woke revolution are saying things publicly and in private about how this is just uh, this is a disaster. Uh, 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 the uh, executive editor of the Times has re re released a statement around the firing about how really intent isn't what counts in these kinds of issues. It has to do with how the comment is received, which implies that if you quote the N-word in something without endorsing it as your own point of view, it, that can still be taken as a racist statement, even though it was not intended as such at all. The intent is irrelevant. This is very much something out of critical race theory, uh, this notion that intent is irrelevant. You, all you do is listen to the reaction of those who hear it. So anyway, I, I don't think it's worth going on any more than that, other than to say it's the latest round of kind of ridiculousness at the leading edge of a very strange cultural trend uh, at the moment. But the last thing I'll note is, is there was a story in the Times this week in the midst of all of this about how Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said in an interview that actually – uh, this critical race theory coming from the United States will destroy the French nation if we don't protect ourselves from it. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're always pointing, like, to the German Frankfurt School as the cause of all this, and France <laughs> is looking to us and saying we're the cause of it, and everyone's just kind of trying to defend themselves from this, okay. this trend. So, Linda, um, my understanding is that the offense here is that he's on this trip with these teenagers – one of the girls says that, that she had a friend who had used the N-word when she was 12 years old and got canceled for it later. And O'Neill uh, McNeil was questioning her about this and said, well, did she use the word like in a rap song or did she use it in a, with, you know, in a, in a bad way? How did she use it? And the fact that when he was asking the question, he spoke the word, the magic evil word, which, and it is an evil word. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. But context does matter. And for the New York Times to say that it's a firing offense to ask that kind of an innocent question, that really does seem extreme to me and, and, and vaguely malice. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was um, very upset by this. McNeil, whatever you think of him, he is a crusty kind of guy. If you've watched him at all in his interviews on covid um, he's not a warm and fuzzy type, and apparently he probably wasn't the best person to send uh, on this tour uh, to Peru. He's not would not have been my choice if I had been putting it together. However, the idea that context doesn't matter. I mean, I think I talked about it uh, a while back on the podcast that um, as somebody who was taught literature uh, in a university setting. Uh, Light in August, Huckleberry Finn. I mean, one could go down uh, the list of authors who have used the N-word. And to assume that you cannot assign students to read this and to understand the way in which it's used. I mean, if you're in literature, if you're writing fiction, one of the things you try to do with the dialogue is to capture the content of the character speaking that dialogue. And if somebody uses that word, it says something about them. And to protect students from being triggered uh, because they're asked to read this or 
uh, you know, they're asked to see it on the page. It's very dangerous in education. And here we have, you know, the double standard of rap artists who use this word regularly. I happen to be, I have, you know, younger sons, one of whom really is into rap. And so he, you know, is always recommending me to listen to songs. I find it objectionable. I don't like the use of the word, but it is very much part of the vernacular of the black community. How you can say that it is not proper to read this in a literature class or for someone in a discussion of the word that they cannot use the word. I was going back to our discussion about uh, the impeachment. I wish they had shown the officer, I think it was Officer Goodman, who talked about being called that word and what it meant to him. I wanted to hear him say that. I wanted them to be confronted with that. That is one of the reasons um, making this powerful statement and context matters. And I just, I was very disturbed by this and it goes in a long trend, a uh, recent trend with the New York Times of doing things that um, are anti-liberal. Bill, uh, the, uh, the, the concept of uh, time, place and manner, uh, the intention of the speaker, um, you know, the, from what I have heard, the New York Times had had reprimanded him and put a note in his full file, but didn't sever him from the newspaper until the mob came. The, the, they got a letter from 150 young uh, staffers saying this was, you know, very upsetting. What, what do you say? Well, first of all, if you study the sequence of events, it turns out to be an article in the Daily Beast that triggered all of this months after the Times thought that it, it had disposed of the question. Uh, and I would say with regard to the Times leadership, live by the sword, die by the sword. Uh, you, know, if you, you know, if you create a certain atmosphere in the newsroom, you can't assume if you're the executive editor of the New York Times that it isn't going to come back to bite you. And it did. Uh, and, uh, you know, and his attitude in the face of this, I think, can be most accurately described as supine. Uh, having said this, I spent 30 years as a classroom teacher. And I can tell you in the current circumstances, before I assigned a book, you know, have, you know, containing a now forbidden word, I would get explicit written approval from very high higher ups. You know, this, con this context that has been created is truly deplorable. It's also in many circumstances a fact. And unfortunately, you know, crusty old white men no longer have the luxury of assuming that this context won't come back to harm them unless they're very conscious of it. And I say that with no pleasure, uh, but, but if you assume these days that you are free to do and say what you did 20 or even 10 or even five years ago, you're fooling yourself. Uh, that will have to be my swan song for, for this week, I feel. Okay. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, Jay, the, um, the lack of, of benefit of the doubt is just so glaring here, you know, that we don't, we don't assume the best about people. We assume the absolute worst, right? And um, that, that I keep coming back to this, the context doesn't matter. Um, if you're, if you're quoting from a, look, I, I don't quote from rap songs that use the N word because I'm aware that as a white person, I'm never allowed to do that, but I can imagine that somebody else might not, and I wouldn't want to, but in any event, um, I'm, I can imagine that there are, there are people who are non-racist who could ask a question in an innocent way. Is that are we at a point in our society, or at least among certain woke types, where there's absolutely no quarter given, there's no benefit of the doubt to anybody? No, no charity, uh, no mercy. Uh, what was done to that man is a great injustice, and he cooperated in it by his absurd self-abasement. Uh, he would have been much better off telling them to go stuff it, you yeah. know? Uh, the N-word is a huge American subject. It's the worst word in the American vocabulary. 
uh, it, it's much different in other English-speaking countries, including Britain, but it's our worst word. My colleague Rich, Richard Brookheiser hates the phrase N-word. He won't use it. He thinks it's prissy and perfumed and stupid. He just says it with its full sting when he wants to, when he thinks it's necessary. I don't do that. I use that prissy, stupid, perfumed phrase, N-word. Uh, when I was growing up in the Ann Arbor, Michigan public schools in the 70s and 80s, there was a big debate about whether teachers and administrators should allow black students to call one another that. That seems a long time ago. Uh, but uh, to make a point about the times, uh, who's running the place? Uh, the inmates or, or, or management? I want to say a quick thing about Brett's column. First of all, I wish he could go to a paper that would simply let him publish his columns. Um, he's one of the best columnists in America. Uh, I hailed the Times recently uh, because Brett published a trenchant critique of that whole 1619 business. It was really good and very hard on the Times. And the Times published it. And I thought, wow, good for the Times. Good for Brett and good for the Times. But the Times apparently wouldn't do it in this instance. Now, as a rule, a publication is under no obligation to publish criticism of itself at all. Let's get that straight. But I think the New York Times is a little different. I think it's sort of like the government. It should absorb all comers and, you know, absorb all critics. It's so big, so important, it can afford this. You know, it could have afforded Brett's column. I guess I have higher standards or higher expectations for the Times than I do for other publications. And then they do for themselves. Um, you, know what right. I, you know what I suspect, though, um, just very quickly, that now that I've thought about it, uh, I, I, I will be interested to see the reason why Brett's column got spiked, because... If I've heard rumors today that they might be backing down on the whole intent issue, which is totally ridiculous and really, if applied to journalism, would make journalism impossible because journalism is based on trying to determine the intent of people who do and say things. Um, if they're going to back down from that, maybe they didn't want Brett to publish something calling them out for it because then it would appear that they were doing it in response to Brett as if he were dictating policy. And really, in the end, all of this comes down to just a place that is obviously very badly managed. I know we've touched on this, but I mean, really, it's as if it's, it's like a lunatic asylum with the lunatics in charge. There's like nobody setting policy, actually making decisions and saying, this is the end of this. I don't care if you get 1,500 people to sign a, a prissy letter to me yeah. about this. Uh, it's over. We've made our decision. Move on or quit. Right. I mean, that no one is saying that because they're terrified that someone's going to send a mean tweet attacking management. So, anyway, yeah, awesome. it's, that, it's almost it's almost like they're Republican senators worried about their constituents. <laughs> you know, it's a bipartisan ailment. <laughs> All right. We will now turn to our final short segment, something that we want to highlight. Um, Linda. Well, I'm going to go to an editorial which appeared on Wednesday in the Wall Street Journal, but Trump impeachment evidence, the subtitle was, he might be acquitted, but he won't live down this disgraceful conduct. I wish they had gone farther than that. Um, I think that um, it would have been beneficial if they had actually called for the former president's conviction, and they did not do that. I think part of the problem right now is... There is not the critical mass needed to essentially um, make Trump's actions never again be able to take place. I mean, it's uh, part of the problem for the senators, I think, is you've got six senators um, who have voted at least in, in favor of, of the constitutionality, and then you have 44 others who are terrified if you could reverse that, if you could have 44 people speaking out and saying convict, you know, voting to convict, I think that would be the end of uh, Trump. And I don't think they're getting encouraged enough 
uh, by conservatives and, and respected conservative places like the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial page to do the right thing. So uh, I'm calling this uh, to people's attention because I thought it was very wanting. Mm. Uh, good point. And they, like so many others, you know, in the immediate hours after the insurrection were very harsh and they said, you know, do it right now, you know, let's, let's, and then they backed away like so many others. Okay, Damon. Well, uh, last week my selection uh, was uh, another New York Times thing, this long uh, feature that the New York Times Magazine ran about a classicist at Princeton University who has decided he hates classics and wants to destroy it from the inside out. So this week I want to give a more positive uh, selection on the theme of liberal arts and education. And that is a book by uh, a colleague of mine uh, when I used to teach at Ursinus College outside of Philadelphia named uh, Jonathan Marks. He has a brand new book out. It's a pretty short book. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, 200 pages long titled Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Uh, and, you know, I'm a liberal in politics, but in culture, I'm more of a conservative. I believe that uh, education uh, as well, you know, in addition to the, the research university pushing the bounds of knowledge, uh, universities have a place in simply passing on our cultural and civilizational inheritance. And uh, Marx gives a, a, a very good case for that, but this, this additional uh, sort of um, idea that he gets from John Locke of creating a certain kind of human being who is able to disagree and be reasonable in that disagreement and learn how to just have a conversation with a fellow human being. And uh, he's, he embodies it in the book. It's not just an argument. He's an incredibly deflationary author, which is very uh, 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 untrendy at the moment <laughs> uh, in the sense that he's the opposite of uh, someone who kind of whips up people into a froth. He actually he uses uh, a very wry humor to uh, deflate and to uh, sort of um, de-escalate polarizing debates and conversations. So the book deserves a wide audience, and I think uh, our listeners could appreciate it. Thank you. It sounds delightful, and I've made a note. Jay Nordlinger. Well, uh, would you like a highlight or a low light? You, Either you, or uh, both. <laughs> Well, uh, okay, here's a, a, a low light. Uh, there's a man named Mike Shirky. He's the majority leader of the Michigan Senate. And in either November or December, sometime after the election, Trump summoned him and the House Republican leader to the White House. Uh, he wanted them to overturn the election in Michigan. And they basically told him nothing doing and spent their time in the Oval Office asking for more COVID relief. Well, so I said, good. It's, this same Mike Shirky uh, was about to be censured by a county Republican Party in Michigan. So we went to talk to the people. And he said, oh, those rioters and insurrectionaries on January 6th, they weren't Trump people. You know, someone set that up and paid for it. And, you know, buying into this uh, myth that January 6th was the work of Antifa, BLM, etc., and if you have important party officials mouthing such a thing, what hope is there for the so-called rank and file? My highlight is the release in Saudi Arabia of the political prisoner Lujain al-Hamoul and a few others. Uh, Lujain is someone whose family I've gotten to know. Her name means Pearl. Uh, she's a wonderful, brave young woman who campaigned for human rights and women's rights in particular and has been abused, tortured uh, in prison. And it seems that the Biden administration will take a new approach to Saudi Arabia, an approach that includes human rights and American values. Fortunately or unfortunately, our alliance with Saudi Arabia is very important and must be maintained. Uh, but uh, we're a peculiar nation, the United States is, and uh, we have a certain place in the world, a certain purpose and values to uphold. And those should be borne in mind as we conduct our foreign policy. As the late Vladimir Bukowski once said, uh, Western diplomats, Western governments should do what they will, what they need to do 
you have to deal with all sorts of bad actors. But every once in a while, as they're going about their business, they should ask themselves, how will it look to the boys in the camps? And presidents and secretaries of state and others should pause to reflect every now and then, what about the boys in the camps? Or, in the case of Lujain al-Hathlul, a woman. Right, thank you. Um, I would just like to praise a piece that appeared at uh, the website, the Peterson Institute for International Economics by Chad Bowen. I, I, I misread it the first few times, thought it, his name was Brown, but it isn't. It's B-O-W-N, Bone, I guess, or I'm not sure how he pronounces it. But uh, the piece is called Anatomy of a Flop. And it talks about Trump's trade policy with China and how, um, you know, all of the vaunted uh, benefits that many people have credulously repeated were accomplished, that, you know, he, he was tough on China and forced them to buy more of our goods and all that. None of that is true. And uh, it wasn't the case that manufacturing revived under Trump and that, uh, and that the, the deal with China was, was good for us. And uh, anyway, he goes through the whole thing in a very readable way. Uh, highly recommend it. Anatomy of a Flop. We will be back next week as every week. Sorry for the, um, for the technical difficulties, Jay. It was great to have you. And uh, we uh, look forward to more of this to come. 